It was a test there at the end. She was just seeing if you had already memorized it, right? Uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Hopefully you have a place in the margins of your Bible where you take notes or maybe notes and a, a notepad and a pen, but we want you to get stuff out. Today we're going to be talking about blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and part of this is helping to define biblically what righteousness is. And I hope to broaden this for you, to give you things to take uh, throughout the rest of your week. Uh, I am so grateful for the many ways God is growing this church. He's growing us with people. He's growing us with a a deeper hunger for God. I I wish I could share some of the stories that come to me almost on a daily basis of how some of you are encountering God in your own life through circumstances, situations, how God is revealing himself uh, to you. Uh, And one of the ways God is growing us right now is with people. I don't know if you notice on the back of your bulletin, but the number that we had last week uh, was 666. If you know your Bible very well, you know that's not a very good number, right? And I'm looking out at this church, and I'm like, one of you could not have invited another friend to come to church last week? And you may be thinking, one of us couldn't have stayed home and slept, and I, I like to think more about inviting friends. Let me teach you just for a moment how preachers count, okay? Uh, and this will be really helpful for you. Uh, uh, I want you to take your bulletin and hold it. All right, you ready? And then just turn it upside down, okay? And and do you see what that number becomes? And sometimes that's how preachers count, all right? Because 999 sounds a lot better than 666, all right? All right, uh, let's let's jump into the Bible this morning. Just wanted to have a little fun. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Uh, As you recite those Beatitudes, as you've been studying them on your own, as you've been hearing me preach sermons on them, do you ever look at a Beatitude or do you ever look at a teaching of Jesus and you think that looks like an impossible task, there's no way I can live into that? And as you read Beatitudes, sometimes you read them and it almost sounds like, man, it's like Jesus became this poet for a few minutes and he's thrown around these these idealistic dreams, all right? Like these these sayings that, that mean something, but they're so hard to live into. But Jesus understood how the kingdom of the world worked, and Jesus also understood how the kingdom of heaven worked. And Jesus was interested in trying to point people to something greater and also trying to transform how people lived in that present day. And sometimes you hear the teachings of Jesus, and it's like, man, that just seems like an impossible task. Should I even try? And I bet you could think of an impossible task in your life that there's no way you would ever ever try it because you would fail. Like, why should you even attempt it? Uh, back in March, I tried to get on this stage and show you how I could throw clay. I had never tried this before. I tried to spin some clay and shape it, and it went flying off the stage. It's something I probably shouldn't try when I hear of American Idol coming to somewhere around here, and they're looking for people to try out. That's something that I don't even try, because I think I would make the show, but it would be in like that little blooper part of the people who really didn't make the show. And sometimes when you hear the teachings of Jesus, what we do is we say, that seems like an impossible task. It would, be, it would either be impossible or it would be so hard. And it would take so much discipline for me to try to live into that. So what we do sometimes is we're tempted to, let me just, uh, let me just shrink the power of the gospel and make it into a life insurance plan, something that can catch me in the end, instead of trying to live into the deep teachings of Jesus. Have you been able to notice yet in the Beatitudes that Jesus gives sayings, he gives Beatitudes that he's going to have to live into at some point throughout his own life? 
He's not just giving stuff for people to take into their life. In his three and a half years of ministry, he was going to have to take on what each one of those beatitudes meant. Blessed are those who were poor in spirit or crushed in spirit, who were at the end of their rope, which Jesus would be. Blessed are those who mourn, and we see Jesus mourn. Blessed are the meek, those who become small, those who take a, a humble place where they are strong, but there's also gentleness in them. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and for the things of God. Think in the context of Jesus, what those last four would mean. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who were persecuted. So Jesus doesn't just give these to people to live into. He was going to need them for himself. Now, for Jesus and for any teacher or preacher, one of the most difficult things that we have to do is we teach these messages and we have to live into them. This is why most preachers, and sometimes even me, go into a funk later on on Sunday or what many preachers call the Monday blues. And it's not just because people are shooting emails because they're unhappy. It's because we stand up and we want to take seriously the teachings of Jesus and we lay them in front of people and we invite you into this great adventure and then we sit back and we start reflecting on our own lives and how our own lives are lining up with the teachings that we are giving. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, what Jesus says is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So let me teach us a little bit about what righteousness means. One definition of righteousness, and feel free to write this down, but it is right living, or you can think about it as standing before God. So a lot of times when we think righteousness, we think like about individual piety. What does it mean for you to be a, a righteous person? And I don't, I don't know how you would describe that. And we also live in a world where I understand that some of you, when you hear righteousness, um, you, we start thinking about negative connotations about how people in the world think about righteousness. Because at least in some conversations I'm in, it seems that self-righteousness is used more than the righteousness of God. So what does it mean for you to be righteous? And, and one definition of righteousness, and this isn't the, the full definition of righteousness, so a part of it is you're standing before God. One definition of righteousness is thinking about it as the straight and narrow, that Jesus, that God is inviting you to walk this straight path where you are, it's right living, it's living right with God. And what we know about walking a straight line is if you begin to look to the right or the left, you can veer off, right? We were taught this in driver's ed, weren't we? Like when you're taught to drive, you're taught that, hey, be really careful. Because if you're ever distracted by what's going on on the right or the left, and you begin to look, you will begin to veer. It's just what the body does, right? So when I'm cruising down Summer Avenue and I'm heading home, and there's, there's traffic on the left. There's sometimes people dancing on the, the street corners because they're trying to get you to come in and buy pizza. There may be a traffic accident. There are cool little taco, play, uh, little, uh, taco trucks on the side, you know, and all these distractions. And you begin to look to the right or the left, you can veer. Part of living a righteous life is having your focus on the things of God to where you are not distracted by the things to the right or the left. You're, in this, you're on the straight and narrow. And when it comes to standing with God, I think what is so important about righteousness and what Jesus will talk about later on in the Sermon on the Mount and what you see throughout the Bible is you are not made righteous by things you do, by your efforts. You are not made righteous by how much prayer time you clock per week or per year, how much scripture you know. Righteousness before God, your standing before God is not based on your own righteousness. It is based on the righteousness of Jesus. 
He is the one who took on the sin of the world. You are sinful, unrighteous. Jesus has made a way for us to stand in the presence of God to be made righteous. So when you stand before God, the stamp of approval he gives on your life is not based on your merit and what you have done. He is stamping Jesus' approval on you. So what we are called to do is to trust in the righteousness of Jesus, not in the righteousness of my own. Now, where this is hard for, even for some of you, is I think there are probably some people in this room right now and you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, you've never given your life to Jesus, because when you start thinking about all the things you have already done in your life and the sin that you have accrued and the, and the guilt that you are feeling, you're, you're thinking, man, there's no way that God would be willing to, to forgive and save me. As if the cross of Jesus came with like a, a two million sin plan. And some of you are thinking, I met my quota years ago. And there's no way God would be willing to forgive me. Uh, Jesus took on the sin of the world so that you could be made righteous. Some of you have given your life to Jesus before. Yet there's guilt in your life because seasons of intentional sin you have been through. And you're wondering what your standing before God is. Our standing before God is based on the righteousness of Jesus, not on your own righteousness. Another way to think about righteousness is right-relatedness. And I, and I really like this kind of definition. Like, what are you related to? If I were to ask you today, who are you related to? You would respond with uh, the names of grandparents or parents or brothers or sisters. If I were to ask, who is, one, who is the most famous person you're related to? Some of you would have an answer to that. I'm related to the country singer Kenny Rogers. He's a fourth cousin of mine. And what that means is I've never met him and he has no clue who I am. But when famous people we're related to comes up, I make sure I throw that in, all right? Because he's way down the family line. So who are you related to? If I were to ask you, what are you related to? I don't know how you would answer that. Because I think that's a question the Bible asks quite a bit. It's not just who are you related to, but it's what are you related to? Because the what are we related to often becomes those forms of idolatry in our lives. The Old Testament talks a lot about this. That people became related to things that were pulling their attention away from the Lord. Now, for 2,000 years ago, to the crowd Jesus was talking to, and this has been a problem for over 2,000 years, when it comes to right relatedness, what are you related to? Jesus was talking to people who many of them had an understanding of church and theology and faith, and they knew some scripture, and they knew the traditions. But one of the challenges for them is a challenge for people who live in the 21st century too, is that the things we are related to that we think are what makes us righteous are things that really don't. Uh, and, and for them, there was this relationship to Torah, this relationship to Scripture that they were banking their life on. It was about how much they knew the Bible and how much they uh, followed the traditions of the elders. And this can become a temptation for us too. How much Bible do you know? This is what makes evangelism, in my opinion, one of the things that makes evangelism in Memphis and in the South so difficult. Because when I strike up conversations with people and faith comes up, it seems that almost everyone I talk to has some kind of experience from their past to point to. Uh, they went to church with their grandma years ago, or they have some conversion moment because they were at a gospel meeting, they were at a revival, they have some conversion moment they remember. And then I have to stay in this conversation about faith with people long enough not to see if their conversion, because if, if, I'm not the one who says that it took or not, 
But what I do want to find is, is there, are you bearing fruit in your life that shows that you're living the life of a saved person? Because here's the deal, all right? And look, I love grandparents. I love teachers who've gone before us. But here's what I notice some in the church today, is that there are some people who are more concerned about protecting the faith of grandma than they are into living into the adventurous faith of Jesus. That there's some people who want to appease dead grandparents and dead teachers more than they want to live into the fullness of the teachings of Jesus. And I'm not trying to sound harsh, but let me poke just a little deeper, all right? Uh, I think we all have hills we would die on. Uh, And I think what is so important is that when we are talking to the next generation and we want to raise up the next generation, we've got to make sure that the hills we're calling them to die on are hills that Jesus would die on. Um, Because I just came to a point in my life years ago when I realized that I really don't think that the debate between acapella music and instrumental music is a hill Jesus would die on. Or so much of what goes on even this morning, I don't think there were a lot of things that we do in here that Jesus would be a hill he would die on. I think he wants to have a worship experience that can point people to Jesus, that transforms how they live tomorrow. But I don't think Jesus is, he's not willing to die on a hill of who gets to lead prayers in a worship service. I think he's concerned about what prayers we pray in a worship service. And the hill Jesus seems to die on is the confession that Jesus is Lord. If, if anyone ever calls that into question, puts a gun to your head, we, that is something we don't fall back away from. The hill of the resurrection of Jesus being true, the, the living into the fullness of Jesus is what it's all about. So when we stand before God, one thing we are placing before him is this right relatedness. We want to be related to the right things And instead of allowing the things of life or even the things of church to inform our thinking of God, we allow the fullness of God to inform our thinking about things. Something else in Matthew 5, 6, as Jesus points out, is that this kind of righteousness is to be craved. He doesn't say blessed are those who are righteous or blessed are those who want to be righteous. It's blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um. I was reading not too long ago that there are uh, national parks now who have people who are really concerned about animals because there are these animals like deer and elk and bear in some of the national parks and national forests who are becoming addicted to uh, junk food that human beings are leaving behind. Uh, and what, it, what it's doing to them is they are beginning to prefer junk food over the things God created for them to eat. So they're filling their bellies with junk food so that vegetation that they're supposed to be eating doesn't even settle into their belly well. Do you ever feel this way? Like you eat a couple of cans of Pringles and then you try to throw down a couple of carrots and they just don't settle well, all right? And we just got a new dog. He's a white dog. And there have been a couple of times where he comes inside because every once in a while we have people who walk by our house and they're walking down the sidewalk and they eat a bag of chips and they throw the bag on the ground and it blows into our backyard. And there have been times we've opened the door to let him back inside and his whole face is covered in orange because he's had his face inside of a Cheeto bag or a Dorito bag. And if dogs smile, my dog smiles in those moments. Because I am, I am 100% sure, 99.9% sure, that if I were to put a, 
a bowl of dog food and a bowl of Cheetos right by each other, I know what my dog would go for. So there are these people who work in the national parks who are calling junk food the crack cocaine of the animal world because it's destroying animals. Some of them are becoming, they're suffering from starvation because of this. And what happens when our appetites are going after things that are not of God is that the appetite for righteousness is suppressed. Pressed down, pressed aside. Righteousness is about being related to the right things and it's craving the right things. And not just that, let me broaden righteousness for you just a little bit, all right? Because another way to think about righteousness in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it teaches so much about this. The word for righteousness can also mean justice. It can also mean straight, as in being straightened. And whenever I say justice, I don't want you to think about a judge or a gavel or a jury or punishment of the guilty person. And I don't have have time this morning to show you all these places throughout the Old Testament that talk about righteousness and justice. I just want to point you to the truth that we find in the Bible. Is that righteousness and justice, which come are the same word, refers not just to the wrongdoer being punished... It refers to any kind of wrong situation being made right or being made straight. So I've been doing it in my own personal time. I've been reading through Isaiah and Jeremiah recently. And I'm shocked how many many times righteousness and justice show up. And when you see righteousness and justice in Isaiah and Jeremiah, in the Psalms and other prophets... What, what the, what the uh, writers are talking about is it's not just you're standing before God, it's you're standing for the things of God and for what's important to God. And, and punishment was coming to the people of God because of their failure to care about making wrongs right. Because in the Old Testament, uh, things like the hungry being fed and the sick being made well and caring for orphans and widows and the fatherless, these were about living into the righteousness of God. So justice didn't always have to do with punishing a wrongdoer. If they were guilty, it was helping to right a situation in someone's life. Righteousness and justice, and I love the definition of this. This this should mean a lot to our church. Righteousness and justice are aimed at the broken pieces of any community. They are aimed at the broken pieces of someone's life because they are aiming there in order to put something back together. So the hurt in someone's life, depression, suicide prevention, single mothers, the elderly, poverty, AIDS, orphan care, all these things should matter to the church. Because when it comes to the fullness of righteousness, it's not just about your standing before God, it's also your standing for God. So some ways other translators have translated Matthew 5 verse 6, or blessed are those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. Or blessed are those who hunger and thirst to see right prevail. So this morning, I don't want you walking away from here thinking righteousness is all about you as an individual standing before God. And I also don't want you to think that righteousness is all about some social effort you make this week and making wrongs right. It it holds all of these together that as we stand before God, realizing what Jesus has done, it calls us to be a certain kind of people this week. Because righteousness enters into us And it also spills into the world that God is so eager to love. Now, here's the challenge for me and probably for you too. Is that when I think about wrongs in the world that I want to see made right. And when I'm going into the world, I've got to make sure these are things that God wants to make right. Not just that I want to make right. 
because it becomes really easy for me to have this agenda and to place that agenda on what I think God's agenda should be instead of living in a place of prayer and surrender and solitude so that God's will will become what I want to live into. Uh, So what are you craving? And where's your appetite? Uh, Because the promise in this beatitude is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Who doesn't want to be filled with the things of God? Uh, But the kind of filling that Jesus promises is not this eternal filling that will never cause you to be hungry and thirsty again. The best way I can think about it is, uh, probably the day of the year I eat the most, and probably you too, is Thanksgiving. When we're with my family, we eat turkey and ham and all this other stuff. When we're with Casey's family, we don't do turkey. We do brisket because they are so committed to the ways of Texas, all right? And there's, <laughs> and there's brisket and there's the, the brown sugar with a little bit of sweet potato underneath it, you know, and... And I eat so much that I don't want to play outside with my, my boys. I, I, don't, I don't want to move. But the craziest thing happens is by Friday afternoon, I'm hungry again. Like you think about the food you love the most and you go home and you eat it today. You're going to be hungry later on tonight or tomorrow. And I've, and, and I've been in conversations with people, and there have been times in my life where I've wanted to live into the righteousness of God so much that I won't crave it because I will be living in the fullness of it. But what Jesus is placing in front of people is this hunger and thirst in you for the righteousness of God that will never go away until Jesus comes and makes things right. It's this continual, and you think about it, to have an appetite means you're a healthy person. Without an appetite, it means you're probably sick. Uh, um, whenever you have a stomach illness, one, stay way away from me, all right? But whenever you, you're, you're, you're sick at your stomach, a sign that you're getting better is there's an appetite, and it returns. When I'm doing hospital visits, and Mark Taylor, I bet you ask this question quite a bit too, and those of you who visit some in hospitals, often the question I'll ask people, one of the questions is, do you have much of an appetite? Because when we have an appetite, it's a sign that we are getting healthier. So this morning, I want to ask our prayer leaders, if you will go to your places, if our shepherds will go ahead and move. We'll have a couple of shepherds up front, we'll have shepherds in the back. Because there may be someone here, and what you were thinking today is, I haven't taken righteousness seriously in my life for years. You need a place where you can go and pray and have people pray for you, that this will be something that you will crave. There's some of you who may feel like you understand righteousness, but it's not something you have hungered and thirst for for a long time. So what we have up here to my right is Terry, and if there's a prayer that you want to bring in front of this church today, we are about to sing a couple of songs, and Terry will be up here to my right, to your left, to receive you. And we offer these other places where Kim Chapman's over here to my left, Fawn's over here to my right. We have Lenora in the back. If there are women who need women to pray over you, pray prayers of blessing. We have... Uh, the Montgomery's who are over here to my right, if there's someone who wants uh, a shepherd and his wife, a married couple to pray for you, we also have Wayne in the back. We're going to stand together and sing a couple of songs, and I invite any movement for prayer to happen in this room. Let's stand and let's sing.